want to speak to you this morning and the, uh, the encouragement of the elders to uh, circle back to a topic that I spoke to you about just a couple of weeks ago. Those of you who are here and with us, you'll remember on June the 28th that I took a break from our series in Matthew to address the Supreme Court decision of just two days prior in which uh, the Supreme Court of the United States uh, struck down all state law in uh, prohibition of homosexual marriage, effectively making now the union of a man and a man and a woman and a woman in something the state now calls marriage the law of the land. And I need to circle back to that. I want to circle back to that. The elders have encouraged me to circle back to that because uh, it is such a significant event. I've had some time. We as elders have had some time to think and pray and process and are continuing to do so. And many of you I know are praying for us, and I would continue to encourage you to pray for us. We think through the implications of this for this fellowship here and for the continuing mission that Christ has given us as his church, which is to go into all the world and make disciples. We have childhood memories. We all have childhood memories. Certain things that stand out to us from a long, long time ago, the older, uh, those that are older like me, you, uh, you can still recall some of those things from your youth. And one of the things that stands out to me is, and, I, and it's funny because I don't know how many times it happened, but it surely happened at least once, and uh, it has stood out to me for over 50 years. And that was uh, early in April morning, I grew up in Massachusetts, so it was an early April morning in Massachusetts, still dark, when uh, our parents bundled us up and and, uh, loaded us into the family station wagon, and we drove the 35 miles or so to Lexington, Massachusetts, where we gathered there in Lexington, Massachusetts, on the green in the very early hours of the dawn morning, and watched a reenactment of something having to do with the Revolutionary War. As a boy, one of the things that really stands out to me is to see reenactors dressed as British soldiers and then American militiamen, just plain citizens, as they opposed one another there. And the gunfire rang out, and black powder firearms create a lot of smoke. And it was the, the field was obscured in smoke. And then as the smoke cleared... Uh, my memory fades. I, I really don't recall anything beyond that, but I, but I will vividly recall that. Growing up in, uh, in Massachusetts, uh, we have always celebrated what would be considered, I suppose, a regional holiday, although I don't understand why it would be regional. It ought to be national. And it's called Patriots Day. Probably nobody it's because it's the day they run the Boston Marathon. But uh, it really has little to do, actually has nothing to do with the Boston Marathon. That's just a convenient time of year to do it. Patriots Day is uh, celebrated on the third Monday of April. Although originally when the holiday was established, it was established for the 19th of April. To record and and memorialize events of that which have particular significance uh, to certainly that region, this nation. So let me tell you a little story. 
It was the 18th of April in the year 1775. 700 British soldiers set out by boat from the city of Boston, crossing the Charles River, forming up there to march the 20 miles or so to Concord, Massachusetts. Their mission was to seize a store of ammunition and weapons that the colonial militia had accumulated there in Concord, Massachusetts. A soldier by the name of Paul Revere and a few of his associates, calling themselves the Sons of Liberty, had established a spy network in Boston and were aware of the movements of the British troops. Paul Revere, that night, had also uh, uh, forded the Charles River and was there uh, with his horse waiting for a signal that his friend would send him. And the signal was to hang a lantern in the belfry of the Old North Church in Boston. And the signal was one lantern if the British were going to move by land and two if they were to move by sea. That is, if they were to cross the Charles and go in that direction because it would have different routes. Eventually, sometime after midnight, there in the belfry of the Old North Church, a lantern was lit. But he paused and waited, and then a second lantern was lit. One if by land, two if by sea. Paul Revere got on his horse and sped to warn the various villages and towns of Middlesex County that the British were coming. In the early dawn hours, 77 militiamen from the town of Lexington assembled on the green, waiting for the arrival of 700 British troops. When the troops showed up, they did not expect to see these farmers who had assembled themselves. There's considerable confusion about what happened next in terms of who is responsible, but a shot was fired. Both sides to this day claim it came from the other side. God alone knows. But a shot was fired. The British responded with a volley of musket fire, and when the smoke cleared, eight farmers lay dead on the field, ten wounded. The remaining militiamen scattered. The British soldiers, soldiers continued their march a couple of miles to the next town, which was Concord. But when they arrived there at what's called the Old North Bridge, which spans the Concord River, 400 militiamen had assembled. Again, gunfire was exchanged. Two Americans were killed, three British soldiers. At that point, the English retreated. They never made it to Concord. Even if they had, the arms supply had been moved. But they retreated back towards Boston. And all along their return trip to Boston, American militiamen sniped at them and inflicted multiple casualties. Beloved, that was the beginning of the American Revolutionary War. The events of that day were 
memorialized by Ralph Waldo Emerson in a poem that he wrote called The Conquered Hymn. He wrote it on July 4th, 1837, for the dedication of a battle monument there at the Old North Bridge at Concord. I don't trust myself to uh, recite it to you by memory, but let me just give you the opening stanza of that poem. By the rude bridge that arched the flood, their flag to April's breeze unfurled. Here once the embattled farmers stood and fired the shot heard round the world. Emerson had a personal interest in the events of that day, for his grandfather was a pastor in Concord. And he lived in the parsonage uh, that was bordering there on the old North Bridge and observed the events of that day firsthand. Beloved, we live in interesting times. Interesting times. On January the 22nd, 1973... The Supreme Court of the United States ruled in a decision, Roe v. Wade, finding somehow in the Ninth and Fourteenth Amendment of the United States Constitution a right for a woman to terminate a child in her own womb. We have lived in a culture of death from that day forward. Many of you have no doubt either seen or read about a recent video that has been circulating around on the Internet that was filmed with a, a leader of the Planned Parenthood movement in which she cavalierly, over a bottle of wine and a salad, discusses the dismembering of children in order to harvest and sell their organs. Beloved, Nazi Germany slaughtered people to harvest their organs. We live in a culture of death. It is like one bookend. The other one was put in place on June the 26th of the year 2015, in which the decision Obergefell and V. Hodges established this right to what is called a homosexual marriage. Death. And now, defiance. These are the bookends that will mark the error of the destruction of the United States of America in the way that you and I have ever known it. We are called, I believe, to stand in the face of this incredible, incredibly perverse culture. We are called to be light and salt in a world that wants nothing to do with God. So I want to talk to you about that a little bit this morning, and I want to do it again with a very simple outline, just a few words to hopefully keep our thoughts on track. Matthew chapter 13 and the parable of the sower. I want to take you to beginning here in verse 18, where Jesus explains this parable to us. Hear then the parable of the sower. 
When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root self, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one in whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. I draw your attention back to verse 21. And it says, when affliction or persecution arises. The word translated affliction there is, gives the idea of pressure. It is pressure that is brought on by trouble. It's different than persecution. It's, it's the notion that here in this case, that the word brings trouble to this person. It causes them trouble. It brings pressure into their lives. And in the face of that pressure, they wilt. And beloved, we live in a world of pressure. And that pressure is only going to grow as this society runs headlong away from God. More and more and more, it is going to require something of us to stand for Christ. There are sacrifices that will have to be made. God forbid that it results in in overt physical persecution, although it certainly could. The history of the church bears witness of that reality. But whether it ever ends up that far or not, one thing is absolutely for sure is that is that the pressure is going to ramp up. You felt it already, no doubt. It comes in school when you have schoolmates and, and teachers who openly mock the gospel and anyone who claims adherence to the Lord Jesus Christ. It happens in the workplace where people are denied promotions and some are even, even lose their job because of a commitment to the scriptures. Pressure. Pressure at school. Pressure at work. Pressure at home. From family members who don't understand your Christian commitments. Who find your commitment to the gospel. Maybe, maybe at one time they thought it quaint. Now they find it offensive. You're out of step with the world. And that's only going to increase. It only took two days, from June 26 to June 28, for an article to appear in Time Magazine online website, time.com, I think it's called. For an article to appear, it's interesting, the article had been written some time before that, but time chose to make it available to the public on that Sunday, June 28th. 
The basis of the article was, now is the time to revoke the tax exemption of churches. We've arrived at that place, according to this article, and the author argued his point. I'm not going to take the time this morning to refute that argument. I will just begin with this and say this, that the, that the whole argument begins with a statist notion that the government owns everything, and by their benevolence, they let us use some of it. And if you don't understand that, what that means is that you have from the well of statism too. There will be an increasing call to bring about pressure upon those who do not conform to what is now considered acceptable societal doctrine. The attacks are arising from among those who claim the name of Jesus Christ with regard to homosexuality. The attack now is to say that we have, and the church has, for the last 1,900 years, misinterpreted the scriptures. And that when Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that those that engage in such behavior engage in what is unnatural, what they say is that what is unnatural is for a heterosexual person to engage in homosexual behavior. But when a person is homosexual by birth and orientation, it is only natural for them to express that which God has created them to be. And for them to do anything else would be unnatural. If you haven't heard that yet, you will. You may hear it from family members who are parts of churches who have long ago jettisoned the word of God and are merely now bringing their latest interpretations in line with what the culture wants. You've no doubt heard this. That God is love. And when people one another, how could you possibly deny them the opportunity to express that love? Where to begin with that? God is love. The scriptures declare to be such. Holy. And God is just. And love is not what we define it to be. Love is what our creator created it to be. It was for love that Jesus hung on that cross. And it had nothing to do with a strong emotional attachment to those for whom he was about to die. When marriage is defined by love... There's nothing to keep me from marrying my teacup. And beloved, the church has been living in the backwash of a self-definition of love for a long time. People fall into love and they fall out of love. Nonsense. Nonsense. The church needs to get its act together with regard to what marriage is and what it's about. 
is the ceremony given the the ordinance, the, the creation ordinance given by God long before government ever ever came into existence by which he displays for all time, for all humanity, both the redeemed and unredeemed, the profound reality of the union of Jesus Christ and his church. And any distortion of that is an affront to God and a blasphemy of Christ and his church. We need to get our act together with regard to marriage. In our culture of defiance, gender is now something that someone chooses. It is self-selected. In Matthew 19 and verse 4, Jesus said, Have you not read that God created them from the beginning, male and female? Gender is God's idea, not ours. And it is fixed by him. It is fixed by him. In any attempt to cloud, distort, or change that creation reality is an abomination in the sight of God. It is merely further evidence of a culture that is living in open defiance of their creator. Now, our culture has long since sort of defined God out of existence, right? Here by some great cosmic accident, we're the product of a long string of, of chemical interactions. We are a soulless creature, captains of our own ship. This is the world in which we live. This is the world that increasingly brings pressure on his church. The exclusivity of the gospel, the priority of world missions, these two will come under increasing pressure to stop. Leave what you want as long as you believe it for now in your own mind and keep it to yourself. If you have the audacity to speak it in public, you are guilty of hate speech. And it will not be tolerated. It will be suppressed. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, I'll turn you there in verse 12. Writing to a scattered church. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, creep rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Do not be surprised. We are not to be surprised. This comes upon us. In fact, we're ourselves blessed because it is the certification 
of our faith. It is the evidence of our attachment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in 2 Timothy that all who desire to live godly for Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Chapter 3 and verse 13. So pressure, beloved. If you've not yet felt it, you will. And that takes me to my second word, which is prudence. Prudence. Prudence is one of those old words. It is the idea of of wisdom. It is the idea of of one who can look ahead and, and foresee consequences. Appropriate plans to deal with those consequences, normally negative consequences, before they arrive. Prudence. First Chronicles, chapter 12, we have an example of prudence. First Chronicles, chapter 12, and verse 32. First Chronicles 12 and verse 32, the context here is that Saul died and there is an ongoing struggle between his descendants, house of Saul, and David as to who will be anointed. David had already been anointed, but by, received by the people, recognized by the people as the rightful king of the nation. David is, is, uh, is living and ruling a, a small group in what is called Hebron in the south. And there's a, there is a war going on between the house of David and the house of Saul. And it's a seven-year war. And, and gradually, the house of David is winning. And we get to verse 32 of 1 Chronicles chapter 12. And it says, of the sons of Issachar... Issachar is a small tribe in the, the, whose territory was in the northern part of Israel, just south of the Sea of Galilee, part of the Valley of Jezreel, well within the territory of the kingdom of Saul. But of the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do, their chiefs were 200, and all their kinsmen were, uh, were at their command. And what the, what the chronicler is saying is that these leaders in this little tribe of Issachar could read the handwriting on the wall. They recognized the reality that David had been anointed as the future king. He was the king of Israel. And that the house of Saul needed to move aside. And so they led their people, those who had knowledge of what Israel should do, to come to Hebron, pledge their allegiance to David, join the house of David, and unite the kingdom under the Davidic rule. These were men who could look around, could see what was going, and acted prudently, appropriately. It reminds me of Proverbs, chapter 22, and verse 3. 
where the writer says, The prudent sees the evil and hides himself. But the naive, the simple-minded, go on and are punished for it. Or 27 and verse 12 for a similar thought. A prudent man sees evil and hides himself. The naive proceed and pay the penalty. The prudent person is able to evaluate what is going on around them, the circumstances. They are like the men of Issachar, men who understood the times. And they recognize what needs to be done. For us, to be prudent is to look around us, is to, is to recognize the signs, is to see what's happening. And to make appropriate preparation for it. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, and in verse 16, speaking to his disciples whom he will send throughout the nation of the land of Israel, preaching on his behalf. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. This is a proverb of his day. And it essentially meant this, that, that a snake, when danger approaches a snake, it, it withdraws, it retreats. It only fights when it's cornered. And a dove... That notion of innocence is, is the idea that, that a dove is easily captured, easily overcome by prey because it is not suspicious of everything. So what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, you need to exercise divine discernment, godly discernment, to be able to know when to way. And you need to not allow yourself to become so jaded, so cynical, that you're suspicious of everyone. That's a balance. That's a hard balance in a, in a culture that is, that is bound and determined to destroy faith in which you have placed your, your entire life. We are not to be suspicious of our neighbors. We're not to be suspicious of our fellow man. They are not our enemies. We don't fight against flesh and blood, Paul says, right? In Ephesians chapter 6. Our fight is a spiritual battle against the forces of darkness that, beloved, are absolutely energizing this culture. Pressure, prudence, preparation. How do we prepare? What is it that God calls us to do? What is our battle? Second Corinthians chapter 10. The Apostle Paul says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. You could also translate that prisons. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Our war, and believe me, we are in a war, is a war that is being conducted for the hearts and minds of our fellow citizens, for our own children. Our enemy is the various philosophies and, and theological systems that are erected by unbelieving mankind and put forth as, as an explanation of the world. Whether it be evolution or the homosexual agenda or the, or the it's a woman's right over her own body argument Or the scripture is a product of, of human invention over thousands of years and, and laced with error and uncertainty. And the very fact that there are multiple English translations proves the point that it's unreliable. Or that you can find your God within at the local yoga mat. And on and on they go. Prisons. People's minds are imprisoned by the lie. And we are called to smash those prisons. And we smash those prisons through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is the only power of God unto salvation. We are called, in the words of Peter, again, 1 Peter 3, written to the church that is scattered and being pressured and persecuted, where he says in verse 3, beginning in verse 13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? We are to be known as people who are good, people who are a blessing and a benefit to our neighbors, to our societies, to our employers, to our teachers, to our families. But... Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify, that is, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you, to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Stand ready. To give a reason for the hope that lies within us. And do it with gentleness and reverence. But beloved, it begins by sanctifying Christ in our hearts. It begins by setting apart Christ as Lord in our lives, in our hearts. Lord over all, including our brains and our ethics and our work habits and our marriages and our parenting. And on and on and on. Writer in Proverbs, speaking about the same basic idea in Proverbs chapter 26. 
adds a little information for us. Verses 4 and 5, Proverbs chapter 26. He says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. What is he saying? He's saying that when we engage with a fool, and a fool is one who denies what? God. When we engage with a fool, we're not to enter into his way of thinking, his line of reasoning. We're not to suppose with them that maybe God doesn't exist. Now let me try to prove it to you. That is to engage in foolishness ourselves. Christ is Lord of our minds. That cannot be ever set aside. We know the truth. And we're to speak the truth. And that's why he says in verse 5, you to answer a fool as his folly deserves. You are to rebuke his reasoning. Otherwise, he becomes wise in his own eyes. This is, this is done by asking questions. Simply asking questions. Like, how do you know that's true? Where did you get that from? Have you been everywhere in the universe at the same time and examined all the evidence to conclude that God does not exist? Have you been everywhere at the same time and examined all the evidence to conclude that God has not left sufficient existence? How do you explain morality? Why is it wrong to do this or that? If we are merely the product of some sort of chemical, series of chemical reactions, there is no morality. Why is it when I squeeze a tube of toothpaste, I expect toothpaste to come out and not grape jelly? I mean, if I'm living in a universe that's entirely random, how is it that when I squeeze the tube and nothing comes out, my conclusion is there's no toothpaste left? Beloved, we live in God's world. We live in God's world. Even those who deny him must live in his world and they must live by his truth, all the while denying his reality. That is the fool. The psalmist says in Psalm 36 and verse 9, And by the way, this statement in Romans chapter 1. We don't need to prove the existence of God to anyone. For everyone knows he is and what he requires. The psalmist says, in Psalm 36 and verse 9, the second half of the verse, In your light we see light. What he means by that is we see reality when we see things the way you and only when we see them the way you see them.
We may use the same words as someone who is denying Christ, but we will not be talking about the same thing. When the civil government of this nation speaks of marriage from the 26th of June and forward, and when I speak of marriage, not talking about the same thing. 1 Timothy 6. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Oh, this is a passage that Paul must have written to Timothy because there are a few rich people around. Now, you know what a rich person is, right? Is anybody who's got more money than you? I'd like to suggest to you, beloved, that we're all rich. By any kind of historical measurement, we are rich. This passage is talking about us. It's talking about us. When you don't have much, you don't have much risk. The more you have, the more you have at risk. The more the, the tension between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Christ. So as the pressure comes, and it will. We're going to feel the dilemma. If I keep my mouth shut at work, just go along. Attend all the indoctrination seminars. Don't, don't ruffle the feathers. Keep my Christianity quiet. Then I probably can get that promotion. But at the lunch table... People are talking, and I open my mouth, and I say there is a God, and heaven and hell are real, and that all are going to find themselves banished from the presence of a loving God eternally who refused the Lord Jesus Christ as their only hope. That may well cost me that promotion. They may put my retirement in jeopardy. I mean, after all, probably going to live into my 80s, maybe upper 80s. I want to retire in my mid-60s. I need, I need 30 years worth of money. Do I dare risk these things? The wealthy have all kinds of temptations, beloved. And we're wealthy. Now the elders are, are we are working. <laughs> Probably want to know that, right? We are, we are working. Collecting a paycheck and not working, we're working. And we're praying. And we're strategizing. And soon there's going to, to be some things that are, are kind of rolled out there because we need to get this church on a wartime footing. We need to be on a wartime footing. 
And that's going to, that's going to require some changes. One of the reasons I wanted to speak to you this morning, one of the reasons they wanted to encourage me to speak to you this morning is, is so that we understand what's going on. Why the changes? Reminded of one of my favorite Proverbs, Proverbs 14 and verse 4. Moms and dads, young moms and dads, if you don't have Proverbs 14, 4 circled in your Bible, you can do it now. Okay? This, will be a, this will be a lifesaver for you. But I'm going to apply it in a little bit different way. Proverbs 14, 4. Where no oxen are, the manger is clean. But much revenue comes by the strength of the ox. Hey, you want everything nice and tidy and neat and, you know, no feathers ruffled, all everything fits in its own slots? Get rid of the farm animals. But if you want to get something done, Right? Then you put up with the mess. You put up with the mess. If we're going to put this fellowship on a wartime footing. It's going to be messy. It's going to be messy. It's going to, it's going to, things are going to change. We're not going to get it right immediately. There, there's going to be, you know, wow, that was an idea. We thought it was a good one, but it was an idea. I mean, the secret of leadership is not making the right decision every time the first time. The secret of leadership is making a good second decision. Messy, not sloppy. Not sloppy. But there'll be some mess. we're going to be making some changes in Sunday school. Some significant changes in Sunday school. Okay? Pray. Hang on. It's going to be good. But it might be a little difficult at the beginning. Maybe a little messy. Beloved, we need to become people of the book. We need to be ready to, to give an answer, right? For the hope that lies within us. And those who are really good at that need opportunity to help those of us who are not as good. So that each and every one of us, that's what Peter says. First Peter 3.15, each and every one of us at, a, at an age-appropriate level can give an answer for the hope that lies within We've got some work to do. We live in a time of history when, when we have unprecedented access to the Word of God. And yet, judging by the, the state of evangelicalism in this country, you'd think the Bible was under lock and chain. And that takes me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 
still under preparation. I get my minutes back that the microphone thing took away, right? Okay, it's fair. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, 14. We're almost done. Paul writes to the church there at Corinth. He says, be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Be on the alert. Stand strong in the faith. Act like men. Men, your church needs you. Your families need you. Your nation needs you. And we need to start acting like men. We need to step up our game. Where is our citizenship? Speak to me. It's in heaven. It's in heaven. It's so easy to forget that reality. Pressure, prudence, preparation, prayer. This is where it begins, beloved. Act like men. First Timothy chapter 2, please. And verse 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray. I want the men in every place to pray. I want the men in every place to pray. Up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Therefore, pushes us back into the context, doesn't it? So let's go to the beginning of the chapter. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Therefore, I want the men in every place to what? Pray. Pray. Men, if we pray then we'll do all the other things that are necessary that follow from it. If we do all the other things that are necessary and don't pray, we go into battle with fleshly pea shooters. We need to pray. We need to pray.
And when we pray, and when we pray, when we pour forth our heart, when we throw ourselves on the mercy of a sovereign God, when we acknowledge the, the impotency, impotency of our own strength, our own intellect, our, our own ability to speak, and call on the power of the creator of the universe, amazing things happen. I'll leave you with this. Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are called before the Sanhedrin, the governing authority in Israel. They are told to be quiet about the gospel, to close their mouths. And they answer, verse 19, Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And they are threatened, verse 21, and released. Verse 23, they report back to the church. All that had happened. Verse 24, and when they, that is the church, heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, they prayed. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. When they prayed, And asked God. He gave them the boldness to turn the Roman world upside down. I have no idea what God's plans are for America. None. In his sovereignty, this nation could last another thousand years. Or not. But we're called to, a, to this place, to this time, to this hour. Men, it wasn't women and children who stood in the common in Lexington in the dawn hours of April the 19th. It wasn't women and children who stood at the end of the North Bridge in the morning of April the 19th. Nor were it, was it trained professional soldiers. They were farmers. They were shopkeepers. They were plain, ordinary, average Americans. And they stood. And some of them died. And God in his mercy and providence used that event to establish this United States, this constitutional republic in which we live. We're not in a shooting war. But will we stand?
Father. May this day be for Foothill Bible Church, the shot heard around the world. May this day be the day that we say, this far and no further. May this be the day when the men of this fellowship shoulder the responsibilities of leadership. And engage in the battle. Oh Lord, we don't know what terrible price we might have to pay. Oh Lord, we pray you would protect us from cynicism. From rage, from anger. From seeing our fellow citizens, our family members even as an enemy somehow. For they are not an enemy. They are lost. But, O Lord, we cannot continue to go along as if nothing has changed. For everything has changed. May you grant us courage, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.